0: Guess what, Lions? For as little as $5 a month, you can get access to exclusive bonus audio content and help this program grow by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash support.
1: Uh, I was a liberal Democrat because I thought they believed in freedom. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then when uh, I heard about libertarianism, I found out what freedom really means.
0: Heh <laughs> heh. Sorry, folks. It's been a long week. I don't have quite the full roar effect in me at the moment, uh, but just a little roar, just a little wake up call, just a little hi, hello, and welcome back to Lions of Liberty, the flagship Lions of Liberty podcast. Here on the Lions of Liberty podcast feed, you got me every single Monday with great interviews, like the one you're gonna hear today. Today's is a little bit off the beaten path, a little bit outside of what we normally do here. Not so much libertarian philosophy and politics, but uh, some other subjects. You'll you'll find out in just a moment. But of course. Also, we have every single Wednesday, my man Brian McWilliams hits you with a shot of comedy, culture, and liberty on Electric Liberty Land. And, of course, John Odermat wraps things up every single Friday with Felony Friday, his weekly look at the broken criminal justice system. We truly work hard to bring you a good variety, a good Liberty mix here at Lions of Liberty. And of course, we work even harder to bring you guys more bonus content for our Lions of Liberty Pride members. We have just had a ton of new content. We've got the brand spanking new League of Liberty podcast that I do, along with Chris Spangle of We Are Libertarians, Johnny Rocket Adams of the Johnny Rocket Launchpad, and Roger Paxson of We Are Libertarians. John, Brian, and Rico just started Started up the Degenerate Gamblers podcast for you sports fans out there. And you can actually participate and potentially win a free t-shirt as well. So check that out if you're a sports fan. We really do provide a big mix. Of course, the next Conspiracy Corner, we did bump the schedule around a little bit. That's coming up late next week, probably early the week after by the time it's released. But we're going to be doing a hard look at the Las Vegas shooting and all of the strange oddities surrounding it and theories that go along with it. And so be sure to check that out. You can get all of this stuff for as little as five bucks a month by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. Head over to lionsofliberty.com support to find out how you can help us grow this program because that is our goal, to not only continue to bring you killer liberty content, but to also spread this message far and wide across the land. We can do that with your help. My guest today is a clinical psychologist and speaker, as well as the author of several books, including Three Minute Therapy, and Rational Drinking, How to Live Happily With or Without Alcohol. That, that one sounds pretty interesting to me. Uh, he is a, also a libertarian, although I didn't bring him on the show today to necessarily discuss specifically libertarian topics per se, but I think you'll find that at the end of the day, uh, a lot of this stuff does tie together. Uh, with that being said, I am very pleased to welcome my guest, Dr. Michael Edelstein. Dr. Edelstein, are you ready to roar? Actually,
1: Mark, my message is my roar. Otherwise, I'm a pretty reserved, quiet guy.
0: Well, that's all right. You know, you don't always need to necessarily scream loudly to roar because a lot of times a roar is really more about what you're saying or how you're saying it or, or where it's coming from.
1: Yes. Well, in my case, that's where it's coming from. Excellent.
0: All right. Well, well, Dr. Edelstein, you know, you were actually recommended to me uh, as a potential guest by Professor Walter Block, who's been on this show several times, most recently two weeks ago. And uh, quite frankly, when Walter Block tells you someone might make an interesting guest, uh, I feel it behooves you to listen. And I did. And uh, there's definitely a few areas of your work that I think my audience is going to find pretty interesting. But as I mentioned, you do consider yourself a libertarian. So why don't you just start off talking a bit about how you became a libertarian, um, how you became interested in, in clinical psychology and behavioral therapy. I'm not sure which of those came first exactly, but I'll, I'll let you guide the way here.
1: Uh, well, clinical psychology came first. When I was in college, I was depressed, anxious, procrastinating. I was uh, had a lot of emotional problems, and I discovered Albert Ellis. I was living in New York, and he was uh, an upcoming pioneering psychologist, and he was criticizing the traditional views of Sigmund Freud and others, And what he said made a lot of sense to me. I was 19 and I started to see him and that dramatically uh, changed my life. And uh, I became a libertarian in a related way. I uh, met Walter Block through a friend and the three of us actually were seeing Albert Ellis for therapy. So we had... uh, Albert Ellis in common and his approach, which is called Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy, or REBT. And Walter and I love to debate politics. I was a liberal Democrat in my early years.
0: In New York? Get out of here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And he was uh, already a libertarian, and so we debated. And uh, over a couple of years, he turned me into an anarchist.
0: Wow. So there is uh, one example uh, of... If you pound away on somebody for long enough sometimes, you really can change somebody's mind on things. Often, I think as libertarians, we uh, tend to sometimes get frustrated when debating people that have diametrically opposed views to us, and uh, at some point we might just hit a wall and kind of give up on them. It sounds like uh, you and Walter Block were were close enough friends that that never maybe became an issue between you two, but I'm wondering if you have any insight about why he was eventually able to win you over. What was it about his approach to the dialogue and the conversation that actually did over time... Make you change your views?
1: Well, that's a great question. And I think there were a few things. One is uh, I was a liberal Democrat because I thought they believed in freedom. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then when uh, I heard about libertarianism, I found that what freedom really means, political freedom. So uh, I think I was already had certain values that primed me to be a libertarian.
0: So it wasn't necessarily changing your views entirely as much as, you know, recognizing that your view didn't nec- didn't really line up with uh, the kinds of politics you were supporting.
1: Exactly, exactly. And then the other part in terms of our friendship, uh we played chess a lot. Uh so both of us are competitive and uh it's so somewhat competitive to debate ideas. So we love to debate ideas and uh, that was a great idea to debate socialism versus uh, libertarianism so we had very very friendly debates and we enjoyed the debates and the chess games uh, so i think that was another part of it by the way as a side note walter and i are still great friends we speak every week and normally we find something to disagree about and we argue so, so that's <laughs> that's still the core of our friendship
0: Sometimes it's just fun to argue with people, especially if people that you are good friends with, you know that an argument is not going to ruin the friendship. If anything, it makes it more interesting sometimes.
1: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, That's been uh, a backbone of our friendship. And I think it's helped us get closer to each other.
0: Uh, Dr. Edelson, one subject that you talk about a lot is uh, the, the subject of self-esteem. You've have been on several podcasts uh, talking about that. I believe you did one with Stephen Molyneux uh, as well as Tom Woods a couple years ago. And um, you've been a, a heavy critic of both Nathaniel Brandon and Ayn Rand's view on self-esteem. Uh, of course, both these figures are not libertarians per se. They're they're objectivists, and they I think they've both denounced the term libertarian. But uh, needless to say, I think both have had a lot of influence. I'd say roughly... 30 to 40% of my guests that I've asked how they became a libertarian cite Ayn Rand somewhere in there usually you know just due to her fictional work and and that kind of thing but um, I'm wondering if you could just kind of lay out what your view on self-esteem is exactly and and why and why you believe that their view or more specifically Nathaniel Brandon's view he was the one that really uh, wrote about this heavily what do you believe in in that view to be flawed when it comes to the concept of self-esteem
1: Oh yes very good introduction Mark uh, well try. let's let's start by defining self-esteem to esteem something means to think highly of it so self-esteem means to think highly of oneself now self-esteem is an emotion it means feeling good about yourself it's a good positive feeling Um, so let's talk about where emotions come from now most people would say emotions come from uh events for example if i win the lottery and i'm happy You'd probably all agree, I'm happy because I won the lottery, but that's not how we work psychologically. The way we work psychologically says it's never situations themselves, good or bad, that creates our emotions, but rather it's our thinking about those situations. So for example, if I'm happy after winning the lottery, it's because of my thinking. I'm thinking, isn't it great I won the lottery? This is wonderful. I'll be able to contribute to the Mises Institute and other libertarian causes and travel around the world and buy three houses and two jets, et cetera. Uh, I'm going to have a great life. So it's those evaluative ideas in my head that create my positive emotions, not the situation itself. So that's really the fundamental premise here and also the fundamental premise of the therapy I do, rational, emotive behavior therapy. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does. I, I want to kind of clarify it a little bit, though. I mean, so uh, when you're saying it's it's not the events themselves, it's our thinking, uh, is that to say that, like, a lot of this is just how we're interpreting things inside ourselves, so it's not, it's not the event per se, wherein if someone, maybe, I don't know why they would, you know, play the lottery if they felt this way. Maybe somebody fears being rich for some reason. I don't know. Well, I don't know why. I, I think I'd rather have more money than not, but whatever. So let's say somebody does, and they win the lottery. Again, not sure why they join and play the lottery in the, my weird scenario, but let's just Say they're thinking about this when they win the lottery this other person might instead of getting excited might actually get afraid they might start thinking oh um now all these weird relatives i have are going to start coming out of the woodwork and all these ex-friends are going to come out and suddenly want to hang out with me again and try to get my money so you could have you could have that same event and two people reacting completely differently to it is that is that kind of the idea that it it comes from what's in us more than it is the the outside forces that seemingly are influencing us
1: That's exactly it. And as you said, how we interpret things uh, creates our emotions. Uh, By the way, a more uh, realistic everyday situation is a sporting event. For example, uh, people go to a sporting event and at the end of the event, some people are happy and some people are sad. Now, why is it? Is it the situation? They both watch the same event. Obviously, it's the ideas in their head. Our team won or my team lost. That's good or that's bad. So again, it's how we interpret things. It's never events. Now, an interesting thing about this idea is that through all cultures, through all history, people have the myth that it's a situation. We talk in that way all the time. My wife made me jealous because she was cheating on me or you got me angry because you treated me poorly, or uh, the fire got me depressed because my house burned down. But it's never that way, it's always our thinking. Now that's a very powerful idea because if it's our thinking that causes our emotions, and then we have disturbed emotions like anxiety, depression, anger, guilt, or we act addictively, then we can identify our unrealistic thinking If our emotions and behaviors go against reality, then our thinking is anti-reality, and we can identify our unrealistic thinking and hold it up to the light of reality and reevaluate our thinking and change it and then think more reasonably and thereby have fewer disturbed emotions and more healthy emotions.
0: So would you say that your approach – is in some ways i mean the way you describe it it actually sounds a little bit empowering in some ways in the sense that you know there we can't we know as humans, we can only influence so many of the events in our lives. There are many, many, many events that occur that are really out of our influence, uh, that might, uh, you know, at least in our interpretation, uh, cause us to feel certain ways. But you know, if you start to see things the way you're speaking about, you might realize, well, if it's just my thinking about an event, then the events themselves just got a lot less power over me, and all I have to do is learn to adjust my thinking. Is that, is that the general idea?
1: That's the idea, yes, adjust my thinking, and the way to adjust your thinking is by looking for evidence for your ideas. So if you think, for example, it's the end of the world that my team lost, uh, then you could say, well, what is the evidence? It's the end of the world or even the end of my world. Obviously, it's not. It's just sad, unfortunate, disadvantageous. And then you could go to feeling depressed because you think it's the end of the world because you convince yourself it is to just feeling very sad, very disappointed, frustrated about the event. So since self-esteem means thinking highly of yourself and feeling good, first we have an event. For example, in Nathaniel Brandon's words, I acted responsibly or I'm living consciously or I acted assertively. I did these things that Nathaniel Brandon thinks are good behaviors. And then I said to myself, because I'm acting, the way Brandon would like me to act. This makes me a good person. I'm wonderful. I'm not going to have any problems in the future. Uh, People are going to like me. So if I uh, evaluate my total self, I'm a good person, then that gives me high self-esteem. It's not my behavior's that Nathaniel Brandon approves of of personal integrity or living purposely, but it's my thinking about it. Remember, that's the bottom line. It's my thinking, the ideas in my head, what I tell myself about those behaviors, not the behaviors themselves. Uh, A shorthand way of putting it is that I rate my behavior... I acted responsibly. That's good. And that makes a lot of sense. But then what doesn't make sense is then overgeneralizing to my total self, my being, my personhood, and rating my total self based on the reasonable rating of my behavior. And then when I do that, then I get high self-esteem. I feel good about myself.
0: So do you think that a high self-esteem in, in the way you're talking about it, where you're sort of telling yourself that you're, you're doing great and that you're doing the right things because you're act, acting certain ways and thinking certain ways and applying that to your entire self, do, do you see that as sort of giving someone like a, a false confidence maybe? Is that, or is that what it is? I mean, what, what's the, what is the issue with that, I guess, is what I'm asking, with, with having a high self-esteem?
1: Yes, there are many issues, and that's a great question. It's a false self-esteem, and it's an ego kind of thing. And it leads you to tend to be blind to your faults because if your self esteem is based on how you do, and then you're confronted with faults you did poorly, you screwed up uh, that means you go to poor self esteem you feel bad or hopeless or like a loser, and in order to avoid that, you can just ignore your faults so it's you're less likely to uh, face Uh, problems and try to solve them. Also, it leads you to try to prove yourself because your self-esteem is based on how you do and you're continually doing and redoing, so you might screw up. So so you're always trying to prove yourself. You're still that same good person you were yesterday rather than just enjoying life and uh, accomplishing your goals. Also, it tends to lead to arrogance and grandiosity Because if I'm a good person and you're screwing up, then I'm better than you. So, uh, there's no reason for me to listen to you or, uh, consort with you uh, because I'm a much, much better person. Also, it tends to lead to nationalism because people tend to identify with their country and their government. We are our government. Our government is us. And, uh, so that leads to nationalism we have a great country with china and a great government we're trying to be better than all the other countries and it leads to that kind of thing and even uh war and the other problems of nationalism so those are some of the problems of uh the whole self-esteem idea.
0: That's really a, an amazing uh, way to think about things, that high self-esteem, when applied to the national level, can lead to war, because it can lead to let nationalism, which, of course, can lead to support for major wars. Because if, I guess, if you are the best and all your neighbors in this country are all the best, then uh, somebody else out there might be the worst, <laughs> and they might be a problem.
1: Exactly. And it's, uh, exactly, and uh, this kind of competition is fine in the sports area as long as you don't define yourself in terms of your team. But then when you uh, apply it to the national level, then it comes, often comes down to war and trade wars uh, and uh, tariffs and, and borders and those kinds of things that we know are, are bad for many reasons.
0: Do you think the same sort of concept could be applied? um, I mean, I can think of a couple situations, whether it's maybe um, police officers who are, you know, uh, pulling over a a suspect or something like that. Maybe they think that suspect looks different than them, doesn't look like all the the wonderful, high esteemed, highly esteemed police officers that he is. And they might treat that suspect as sort of a a lesser person because of that. Or uh, I can also think of like maybe just a a sociopathic type person who sees themselves as so above the the people around them that it, it doesn't matter, their actions don't matter whether they hurt other people people uh, as long as you know it's, as long as it's helping themselves
1: exactly and that's a great point because it turns out that many criminals have high self-esteem they think they're better than you and they deserve what they don't have and what you have so it's okay to take it from you uh, so um, or if they think you're criticizing them or looking cross-eyed at them then that's an affront to their self-esteem and their identity, so they're going to retaliate. So uh, self-esteem is tied to criminality.
0: It's interesting. I I want to tick back a little bit, and I actually want to just read a short definition uh, that Nathaniel Brandon has put out of—well, not not has. I mean, he's passed away a few years ago. Otherwise, I would try to host a debate. I think that would be really interesting. Have you ever actually debated Nathaniel Brandon at all, by the way? I'm not not sure if I've seen anything out there um, before he passed.
1: Actually, I had an email exchange uh, with him and I found him kind of slippery. It was hard to pin him down on anything, but I did, uh, do one public debate with, uh, a Randian type named Sharon Presley. And, uh, she's been, uh, fairly well known in the libertarian movement. And I think she was one of the founders of laissez-faire books in, uh, new started in New York and we had a public debate and, um, nothing unusual came out of it. She, uh, pretty much advocated the Nathaniel Brandon line, and and I tried to show the holes in it.
0: Alright, well, let's, let's try to poke these holes a little bit here because I want to read a, a definition by Nathaniel Brandon of self-esteem, and then uh, you can kind of criticize it uh, along the way. So, what Nathaniel Brandon says here in, he, in his definition, he says, self-esteem is the disposition to experience <sighs> oneself as being competent to cope with the basic challenges of life and of being worthy of happiness. It is confidence in the efficacy of our mind and our ability ability to think by extension it is confidence in our ability to learn make appropriate choices and decisions and respond effectively to change uh, it is also the experience that success achievement fulfillment Happiness are right and natural for us. The survival value of such confidence is obvious. So is the danger when it is missing. Um, so so based on his definition there, uh, it seems to me that he's really trying to say, you know, he's trying to emphasize that this is about thinking deeply about your actions. And not, he, to me, it always sounds like he's trying to, emphasize being grounded in reality with self-esteem, not, not the kind of way you're describing it, which is more of not your, your esteem isn't necessarily connected to reality. So do you see that in his definition at all, or what, what issues do you see there?
1: That's a difference, Mark, but there's a much more basic difference, and it gets back to where emotions come from. Remember, uh, we agreed that emotions come from your thinking, your ideas, beliefs, views, Uh, what you tell yourself about situations, but in that definition you read, which is a very good summary of his beliefs.
0: He wrote it, so I hope so.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. Uh, He puts that aside. He says that your emotions don't come from your thinking. He says your emotions come from your disposition. I think that word was in the first sentence you read, and it comes from an experience, but it doesn't. It comes from what you tell yourself about your disposition and what you tell yourself about your experiences. And that's why when we go to a baseball game, we both have the same experience. We see team A won and team B lost, where we have very different emotions because it's our thinking. So So what he's really expressing is a behaviorist view. He's just looking at behaviors and not a cognitive behavior view. It's our thinking that mediates our behaviors and emotions, and it mediates our events that we experience and emotions. So he's off into behaviorism, and that's a problem for me, and I think it's a a problem for psychology.
0: So you think the the real issue is really even at his general axiom the idea of of he calls it a disposition to experience things in in certain ways whether it's to cope with challenges or or feel worthy about yourself and and your your actions in life or you know whatever i guess whatever events happen to you in life uh, and you're saying that you know right from the beginning that's wrong because it's not a disposition it's it's a uh, a way of thinking and and that your thoughts. So maybe you can d- just define a little bit more there the difference between a disposition and and your thoughts like are we predisposed to feel certain things or think certain things how, how can you parse that out for us
1: well uh, we are uh, predisposed uh, by by our genetics to feel uh, certain ways and think certain ways and uh, we're humans so humans think in certain ways so we certainly have dispositions and predispositions and genetic proclivities but then it's how we mediate that uh, that makes all the difference. there was a famous uh, study uh called "The Cognitive Determinants of Behavior by Schachter and Singer and They had uh, subjects come in and they put them in a waiting room to wait for the experimenter, but the experiment really went on in the waiting room and what they did was they injected before the uh they went to the waiting the subjects went to the waiting room they injected them with epinephrine which sort of gets their body going uh and they feel sort of a little high that kind of thing and then uh they sit the subject sitting in the waiting room after getting the epinephrine and uh and someone co- someone else comes in and sits down in, in the waiting room who's uh a confederate and in some uh situations a confederate acts sort of silly and happy and things like that. And, and takes a piece of paper, crumples it up, tries to throw it in the trash basket and laughs about it. And, uh, in another uh, situation, the subject comes in and seems grumpy and angry and, and glares at the subject. And then, uh, the subject is escorted in to take a pencil and paper test. And they're basically asked, uh, how they felt. And, um, and what their thinking was, and it turns out that the subjects that were in the waiting room with the grumpy one felt kind of grumpy, and the ones that were in the waiting room with the silly one felt kind of silly, expressed by their answers on the on the pencil and paper test of uh, sort of more silly ideas that they agreed with as or more grumpy negative ideas that they agreed with on the pencil and paper test, so it showed that even though they had the same emotional experience going on in their body, their actual emotions that they created came from their thinking.
0: Hey guys, this is Roger Paxton. And if you're fed up with the government running every single aspect of your life, but you're not listening to the Lava Flow podcast yet, then what's wrong with you? Check us out at thelavaflow.com or just go back to sucking up to the government. The Lava Flow podcast, striking the root every single episode. All right, well, it's really interesting stuff. If uh, people are more interested in... Deep, doing like a deep dive on your self-esteem work. I know you've done some speeches out there and some really longer form interviews on just this subject. I, like I said, I think you did a really long, really in-depth one with uh, Stephen Molyneux and w- another one with Tom Woods. So I will link to all those uh, in today's show notes as well as your website. So people can definitely do a deeper dive on that if they find this area interesting. But I also want to uh, switch a little bit and talk about something that might be more directly related to uh, what a lot of libertarians, including myself, uh, have gone through uh, while being libertarian activists. And uh, that this is the concept of burnout or political burnout. We'll call it libertarian burnout because I'm specifically speaking to libertarians here. But I've witnessed this myself a little bit, where you'll you'll find a bunch of people who seemingly start to get the libertarian philosophy. This happened uh, to me a lot. I think around the time that Ron Paul was getting pa- popularity in 2008 and 2012, and a lot of my friends were really getting excited about it and getting on board. Some of those friends even went out to uh, to form Lions of Liberty and form this podcast with me. So some of them did stick around. But um, you know, a lot of times you'll see some people uh, be very involved in the movement for you know some limited amount of time, whether it's weeks or months or even years, but then seemingly at some point they will just burn out and kind of stop promoting libertarianism actively. So what is the cause of all this and and what can we do to, I guess, maybe better communicate with people or, or better deal with things in our own way to prevent that kind of burnout?
1: That's a great question. I've seen a lot of that burnout also. And uh so we go back to the basics uh, Basics again, getting burned out or feeling hopeless, withdrawing, uh, giving up, those kinds of things, are various emotions and behaviors, which come from our thinking. So we want to identify the thinking that leads to burnout. So normally, uh, disturbed thinking comes from demands uh, that we put on ourselves, others, and situations. And demands are in the form of must, should, supposed tos, have tos, uh, such as I must do well and get approval, or else I'm no good, and that leads to anxiety and depression, and uh, a demand we put on others: you must treat me well, otherwise you're, not, otherwise you're no good, and that leads to anger, resentment, and hostility. And then the third main demand is life must be fair, easy, and hassle-free. And uh, if it's not, it's awful. I'm going to be miserable forever. And that leads to also leads to depression, addictions, procrastination and burnout. So uh, normally with burnout, the thinking often is, although I prefer to make a dent either in the world or in my fellow libertarians in terms of getting them or the world to think the way I would like it to, therefore I absolutely must make changes right now. The world must see the light. And if it doesn't, it's hopeless. Uh, It's too frustrating and I might as well give up. So it's these kinds of demands and unrealistic expectations that leads to, often leads to burnout. Uh, Also, it's often perfectionism. So you find with fellow libertarians, you agree on 99.9% of everything and you find something you disagree on. And then you say, because I prefer that he see this one issue my way, he absolutely must. I can't stand it that he sees it differently. Uh, This means all of libertarian or ism or my work in libertarianism is no good it's hopeless and then again you feel burned out Uh, did you have any questions about that mark
0: no i I was actually going to say that you know it's it's interesting because i even even after four years of doing this podcast and and you know I still hit points at time to time where I feel burned out. It hasn't been in a while because that has actually been an amazing last year or so of growth of the show. Uh, but, I mean, especially early on when I was putting in so much work, so much work, so much work. And when you're, when you're building up a podcast, you really got to put in, unless you have a million dollars to put in or you're very famous, you have to put in a lot of legwork to even start to get some traction. So I definitely experienced many times in there where I thought to myself – Oh, why? Why am I doing this? You know, what am I getting out of this? I don't know if I should do this anymore. And uh, eventually, I would get over it because I would just tell myself, "Well, I, what am I trying to do here? What are my expectations? Do I actually think I'm going, getting a million downloads after having a podcast for a month? Right. Uh, is that what I need to get to to feel satisfaction from this?" And I guess that over time, maybe I was taking your advice without realizing it. I just sort of altered my view of what I need to get out of it, and I realized much of it is is the process itself. Like this conversation I'm having with you right now. Uh, I, I don't think we'd hate be having this conversation if I didn't have the podcast so to me even just even this the process before it's even released to anybody else I get a tremendous amount of enjoyment even out of that so I think uh, I'm kind of maybe displaying the the uh, Edelsteinian way I guess you might say of uh, just changing the way I view the events that are going on around me and, and the results that I'm seeing uh, the results not, aren't necessarily changing based on my thoughts but I think some way changing my thoughts helps, does eventually help me get better results because when I have a better attitude going into it and better expectations I am able to focus better better and and work harder at things.
1: Yes, Mark, I think that you've hit on some of the solutions. One is just to try to enjoy the process of learning about libertarianism and educating other people about it rather than the product, whether you make converts or not. So uh, to put it in more REBT terms, I prefer to have some impact on the world, but I don't absolutely have to. It's not the end of the world. or It's not horrible if I don't have any impact and I can still enjoy the process and get that kind of enjoyment out of it and also having more limited goals. So uh, rather than thinking you're going to convert every person you talk to, um, you could have a more limited goal of maybe just getting some people to understand what libertarianism is in a clearer way rather than changing their minds so that would be a more limited goal.
0: I do think that's one issue that's kind of I don't know if it's unique to libertarianism. Maybe it's you know kind of with anything that somebody gets really passionate about. But I think with libertarians in particular, a lot of us come into libertarianism because uh, we see a really big injustice out there. Whether it's uh, aggressive wars overseas, or whether it's a defrauding banking system, or a war on drugs that throws people in into a cage for owning a plant, we see these really horrible atrocities that a lot of our fellow man either they might see them like occurring but they don't see that it is the, the travesty that a lot of us see these things as so we we really get the sense of of a weight i think on our shoulders of my god we have to change this and at some point it becomes any, anything short of ending all the wars and and ending the war on drugs tomorrow feels like a failure and and if that's the way you're thinking about it every action is going to be a failure because it's impossible for any of us to to solely achieve a goal like that uh in in uh, probably in our lifetimes at all
1: Yes, exactly. And also you stated one of the main irrational ideas that people have, which is because I prefer to change it, therefore we absolutely have to change it. And when you make preferences into demands, then uh, that leads to global evaluations in your head. It's the end of the world. I have to be miserable forever. Uh, This is a hopeless case. I might as well give up and... uh, go back to collecting seashells or things like that. So uh, so when you're disturbed, whether it's burnout or you have high or low self-esteem, always look for the must, always look for the should and show yourself there are no musts or shoulds. There's just our human preferences, which lead to advantages if we get it or disadvantages if we don't. But no world-ending scenarios. And it certainly doesn't turn us into losers if we fail to convince our friend or change the world.
0: Well, luckily for Walter Block, he was able to uh, convince you, at least, so he didn't have that problem uh, <laughs> when it came to, to Dr. Michael Edelstein. Uh, one more thing I, I want to talk to you about, just because you wrote a book on this very subject, the book is called, again, Rational Drinking, How to Live Happily with or Without Alcohol. I want to talk about drinking a little bit because we actually do a popular uh, segment here on Lions and Liberty where we sit around and just have some drinks. We don't have any agenda uh, and we just talk about politics for an hour. and It's it's very popular. Uh, it's actually one of our most popular uh, Um, segments that we do outside of when we get some really big guests on. So um, there's something about that mix of alcohol and politics that that people seem to like. So I'm kind of curious, what is your view of quote-unquote rational drinking? And do you think that, like I do, that a little bit of booze can actually maybe help a conversation and help change some people's views
1: sometimes? Uh, That's a good question. And I think there are individual differences uh, and that – a little bit of booze could help some people and it could uh, knock some people out or it could lead to some people to have a lot of booze. So it really depends on the person. And certainly uh, for, for a lot of people, a little bit of booze is a harmless pleasure. And helps enhance their lives. All
0: right. And you have an entire book about the subject of drinking. So again, we'll link to this book as well as all your books uh, in the show notes for today's program, which everyone can find over at lionsofliberty.com slash 317317. This is episode 317 of this program. Um, And also, Dr. Edelstein, before I let you go, why don't you just tell people out there, uh, you can briefly tell them about your business, Three Minute Therapy. You also, of course, wrote a book of the same name. And then just let people know how they can contact you, whether they, you know, find your views interesting enough that they might want to actually seek your th- services. I know you do this over phone and over Skype as well. You do therapy servers that way, and uh, as well as uh, maybe if they just want to argue with you about self esteem or, or something like that.
1: <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, I love to argue. I'd be happy to argue about any of these topics. And uh, you can, uh, the easiest way to reach me is just go to my website, 3minutetherapy.com. Uh, three is spelled out, and it's also the name of my book. And I have all kinds of contact information there, and articles there, and chapters from my book. Uh, so that's the best way to contact me. And if you have any questions about any of this, or you have questions about emotional or behavioral problems you have, I'd be happy to answer your questions either uh, phone or email. Uh, so feel free to contact me.
0: Oh, Michael, it was a pleasure speaking with you, and I think this is a really interesting program that usually we are knee-deep in the libertarian philosophy and the politics, and I was really happy to do something that I think uh, a lot of our listeners are going to get some really good value out of that isn't necessarily right along the path that we're always on, but, you know, that's what I try to do here. I try to do things a little bit different than what what we get out there in the libertarian mainstream, so I think we've accomplished just that, Dr. Edelstein. It's been a blast, and uh, we'll talk to you soon.
1: Great. Thanks so much for inviting me on. And it's great speaking with you, Mark.
0: Absolutely. Take care. <laughs> All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed my conversation there with Dr. Michael Edelstein, thank you to Walter Block for recommending him as a guest. I do think he was an interesting guest. Uh, Like I said, a little bit off the beaten path of the kind of subjects we normally tackle here at Lions of Liberty, but I do find it uh, an appropriate subject in many ways. I do think the way we carry ourselves, the way we think about ourselves, and the way we think is ultimately going to affect, obviously, the way we spread a message, the way we interact with other people, the way they think about us, and therefore the way they think about our message. So all this stuff is very important, and I know, of course, many of you out here, especially those of us that have been in this for the long haul, have certainly experienced their fair share of a libertarian burnout. So I definitely wanted to touch on that with Dr. Michael Edelstein. Uh, If you didn't like the interview for whatever reason, well, lucky you, there is a forum for you to tell me just why. And that is by going over to Facebook and finding the Lions of Liberty Forum. That's our private Facebook group where we interact with all sorts of fans of the show. We got almost a couple thousand of you in there now. Uh, it's really turned into a great group. Uh, we've had some uh, some fun in there lately, let's, let's just say. There's been uh, some interesting invasions, but I won't say more on the air. You gotta come join the group to find out about that. All you have to do is prove you're a real person just by answering a simple question about how you first heard about the show. It's not a hard one at all, so that helps us filter out the, uh, the spam bots, the Nigerian princes, and uh, that sort of thing. So please do find us on Facebook and please while you're out there interneting please leave us a five star rating and a great review on iTunes uh, if you've already done that uh, this week you can do it on Stitcher because we'll take reviews there we'll take reviews anywhere but iTunes is really the biggest platform a lot of other podcast apps they all sort of draw from the same iTunes feed so iTunes encompasses most of the podcast world so that's the number one spot uh, to go and for no cost to yourself leave us a five star rating and a great review that is a ton to help us out and spread the word and spread this program out there of course you can also help Help us financially by heading over to lionsofliberty.com slash support and considering joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. You'll get to join a secret Facebook group at that point. Give us get uh, questions for guests, uh, which are published as bonus segments that only Pride members can get access to. We've done some stuff with uh, Dave Smith, Tom Woods, Scott Horton. Really some interesting bonus segments, stuff that you just don't hear anywhere else. So highly encourage you guys to check that out. For 25 bucks a month, you can get access to all of our exclusive bonus content, including... The conspiracy Corner Podcast. The Degenerate Gamblers Podcast. South Park Reviews with Brian McWilliams and Dan Smots. All sorts of random podcasts that we just throw up there. Uh, bonus rants from Brian McWilliams. Bonus editions of Is This, Is this a Crime? Rand Paulus's and Minuses. We just put out a ton of content for our Pride members because we so, so appreciate you guys. So please do go ahead and check that out. LionsofLiberty.com slash support. Of course, if you don't want to chip in the full 25, which of course means you also get a monthly conference call with us. You really do get to be a very, very direct... direct... Direct influence on the show in that case, but you can also chip in ten bucks a month, in which case we'll toss you a a free T-shirt and a free koozie, and or as little as five bucks a month, you still get all the exclusive access to all of the great bonus content we do. So something for everybody, a level for everybody out there. Anybody can afford five bucks a month, just about, and just consider the fact that we do you know three podcasts a week for free, uh, about four to five weeks in the month, depending on the month. So you're getting between twelve and fifteen totally free podcasts a month, and those are going to keep coming. No matter what, even if you don't send us a dime, but we really do go the extra mile for those of us that do support the show and help us grow this program. Help us purchase new equipment like this uh, microphone stand that is currently holding my microphone. So that's one thing. That's making my situation here in the Lions of Liberty Den uh, a lot easier uh, when recording interviews with guests. So I really do appreciate all the help from the Pride members. Again, don't forget to stay tuned this coming Wednesday for Brian McWilliams and his weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty with Electric Liberty Land, and of course, John Odermatt will wrap things up this coming Friday with another edition of his weekly look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday. Until next time, my friends, live long and live free.